Miami, you guys know how to do the right hand of fellowship and hospitality. My wife and I have been through a bit of a whirlwind because I, I do believe I have some explaining to do. Some of you are probably thinking he's tall and he has a flannel and he is, he is from Maine, but that's not Ken Graves. So a lot, I know, I know. And, I, and trust me, I thought about if I just asked everyone to close their eyes for an hour and if I just talk deeper, I sense that wouldn't be um, genuine or right or godly. So, hey, let me just explain. Um, pastor Ken, my pastor, he being the shepherd that he is and that he, as he has for um, decades, nearly three and a half decades, ministering there at Calvary Chapel, Bangor, Maine, a rural part of our, our great country, uh, he has been for years doing residential discipleship with men and women with addiction. And uh, myself, my wife, our whole team at Calvary Chapel, Greater Portland, are fruit from that. We're all former heroin addicts. And Pastor Ken in the last week has just had to make a difficult decision to not commit to the obligation that he had given Zach because of a, uh, a dear brother who had gone back to, uh, to his old lifestyle and the ramifications of what had happened in the last week and a half, an overdose, uh, now has this man, Brian, hanging by a thread in the ICU. So um, just in a, in a turn of a dime, Pastor Zach asked and said, hey, Travis, would you and your wife come down to Miami and fill the stead for Pastor Ken? So it is a privilege to be here. I, I promise you, the moment I got the phone call, I, I stayed up all night on Tuesday night one of those restless nights sleep, and just saying, Lord, what do you want me to share with these young people? And uh, I'm confident the Lord gave me a message, so you can turn to Acts chapter 17. Before those years of serving on staff at Calvary Chapel, Bangor, before the years of being sent out by Calvary Chapel, as Zach mentioned in 2020, planning a church, before all that, I, I truly mean this when I say I was the nuisance of Calvary Chapel Bangor. I was a prodigal in its uh, purest sense. And it was the uh, pursuit of pleasure. It had nearly uh, destroyed my life. Uh, at 27 years old, fully strung out on heroin, I was arrested for a robbery charge in my hometown of, uh, of Bangor, Maine. Attempted to steal a purse from an elderly woman. And that's where sin had me, and unique, because I had heard the gospel as a young man. And uh, I lived most of my life one foot in and one foot out. And uh, maybe there are people here who truly understand what that is like. Um, but came into the doors after serving time in jail, into the discipleship program. This was uh, January of 2015. And it was the word of God that began to transform my life, my heart, my mind, the, the brainwashing that the Word of God gives you and I, the renewal. And uh, what, a, what a, a pleasure it has been to see the Lord at work in the lives of so many people. And I do believe the generation that you all find yourselves in, I don't know if you are aware of this, if you are 26 and younger, you are part of the Gen Z. If you are 27 and above, you are millennial. And these two generations that we find ourselves in, it seems as though the enemy has ramped up in these last days an attack on identity, on gender, on truth, on education, on spirituality. And certainly in the midst of that, as is always the case, God has a remnant. Um, God promised us that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And so 
we are a very privileged generation, born-again believers. We are living in these uh, perilous times. We are living in a culture right now where perversion and confusion and all that is happening is, is, uh, is truly sending people to hell in, in mass numbers. And yet God has called us as ambassadors. He's called us to live out loud. He's called us to be the salt and the light. And uh, I do believe that while the teacher is a bit last minute, obviously Pastor Ken was supposed to be here, the task was not. Pastor Zach made it clear that this first session of this conference would answer what I believe to be a very vitally important question. As Amanda prayed at the end of worship, the words of the Lord Jesus in John chapter 14, speaking to Philip, one of his disciples, John 14, verse six. You guys know it. The Son of God says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And we take note and we hear that and we understand this is a very singular statement. The statement has three definite articles. It's not that the Son of God is a way. Uh, he's not a truth. The Son of God is not saying he's just one of many ways or many roads or many pathways. It's a very narrow, singular, bold statement. And the question that we're going to deal with in this first session, as Pastor Zach has tasked me with, is why is Jesus Christ the only path that leads to God? Why is Jesus Christ the only way to get to heaven? Why is Jesus Christ the only resource which allows us to not just have eternal life then, but also a fruitful life now? We're going to look at that here as we consider Acts chapter 17 in this well-known sermon on Mars Hill, the Areopagus. Join with me in the 16th verse. Acts 17, verse 16 reads this way. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange thing to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Would you guys pray with me at the beginning of our message? Father, you are not surprised by every soul here. You have gathered us. We have responded to the invitation. Lord, we ask now that the Spirit would minister. The Word of God would speak to us. I pray, Lord, that we would hear, that we would apply. And that, Lord, tonight there would be change and transformation in the lives of your people. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I believe arguably one of the most influential nations within all of human history is that of ancient Greece. You consider how it has touched so much of the world we're living in all these thousands of years later. In the world of art, we understand the Greeks developed the concept of aesthetic beauty. Sculptures and pillars and portraits were all revolutionized in Greece's classical era. In the world of sports, it was Greece that introduced to the world the first Olympic Games. You think of literature. The most famous text in all of the world outside of the Holy Scripture would have been Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, of course, from the birthplace there in Greece. Philosophy. We have men like Socrates and Hippocrates and Plato and Aristotle. These men and their minds, they revolutionize modern education and even cultural ethics within the contemporary society that we find ourselves in. And how about human government, especially as Americans? It was there, as we look at the life of a man named Cleisthenes, 507 BC. This man, Cleisthenes, he introduced a system of political reform known as democratia. It's a compound word. We understand demos means the people, kratos means power, democracy was birth right here. Very interesting, a system which empowered the rule of the people government all traces back to this place where Paul finds himself suddenly thrust into the culture with a message. I do believe the only other nation which has shared such a worldwide impact upon its fellow mankind is the United States of America and how God has tremendously blessed us. And we can't deny that as we look at every pillar of our institutions here in America, the Greco-Roman influence has its backbone all throughout all of it. It was the 17th century English poet John Milton. He said concerning Athens, it was the eye of Greece, the mother of arts and eloquence. One of the most iconic philosophers produced from Athens, a man by Isocrates, he made such a statement saying this, so far has Athens left the rest of mankind behind in thought, expression, that her pupils have become the teachers of the entire world. So by no means of exaggeration, the human intellect became as a godlike idol here in Athens. This is where Paul finds himself now on his second missionary journey. It was Plato who said, there is nothing more divine than education. It is only through education that one truly becomes human. So consider with me, brothers and sisters, this far in history, 2023, just consider how like the culture then was to our culture now. And this is going to be important as we look at the message that is given by Paul. As is always the case, with the worship of man, which the Athenians were so good at, with the worship of man comes the rebellion to God. In fact, an ancient Greek proverb that was circulating through the days in the culture that Paul would have visited here in Acts 17, the ancient Greek proverb said, the sins we often regret are the sins we never commit. So pleasure and knowledge and philosophy was worshiped then as it is worshiped today. The fundamental distinction between them and us here in America, however, 
As we look at two cultures, one seemed to be the product of another. We have so much of the Athenian, Greco-Roman heritage as a part of this nation, nearly 250 years old as we are. And we look at that, but one of the biggest contrasts, certainly, the key source of influence that has elevated our nation as the leader of the free world and separates from that of Athens would be the gospel message of Jesus Christ. It was the gospel that God, I believe, elevated America through history in such a way. No doubt that is undeniable, but is also under attack. You guys are well aware that history is now being rewritten concerning the land that we call home. The first formal document constituted within this nation is that of the Mayflower Compact, November 21st, 1620. It was there that on the Mayflower Compact, our forefathers who came over to this land from Europe, they said, in the name of God, we, whoso names are the underwritten on this document, we have undertaken for the glory of God and for the advancement of the Christian faith, we have set a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern part of Virginia. But that wasn't Greece. Greece didn't have that. Greece was not worshiping one true God. They weren't uh, influenced by the gospel. There was a great contrast. So here in Acts 17, the Apostle Paul brings the message of Christ, of his life, of his death, of his burial, of his resurrection, and understand how countercultural that was to these people. They never heard anything like it. And I say that because as we look at what's happening in the landscape and, and in the generation that you and I belong to here in America, for the first time, I dare say, in American history, the message that we bear, it is so countercultural. And so there's something important here as we look at what Paul says. It says in verse 18 of the 17th chapter, then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. So we have these philosophers. These are the trailblazers of art and science and philosophy and literature and education, even spirituality. And yet they seem to be completely unaware of this message. They call it there in verse 18, it's a foreign message. Never heard anything like it. The story-rich religion of Greek mythology, as we try and put ourselves in the sandals of these Epicureans and these Stoics, the story-rich religion of Greek mythology is one that is full of gods and demigods and heroes, filled a pantheon. It aimed itself at bringing explanation to the world around them. Guys, the big questions in life, they had them too. How did the world come to be? Why do disasters happen? Why is there love and hate, and pain, tragedy, war, sex, drunkenness, death? The Greeks' innate knowledge of God was replacing what was true of the one and true God. That meant, of course, that they could worship a God of preference rather than a God of providence. The statement is true. People prefer to believe what they prefer to be true. Someone says, I love beer. I'll worship a God of beer. I love sex. I shall worship a goddess of sex. You guys get what I'm saying? This is what was happening here in Athens. So Paul, in verse 16, knowing this, 
It says his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. It was provoked, it's an interesting word. You guys know, Bible students, New Testament written in Koinoi Greek. It's a compound word, it's a brilliant language. So it says his spirit was provoked, it's parauzus. It means beside and being sharp. His sides were sharp, pricked. He was not just bugged. Sometimes we look around the culture and we get bugged, right? We read our news apps and we get bugged. There's something deeper than that. He was truly grieved. I believe the Spirit of God in him, was, he was grieved as he looked around, pricked to the heart about the condition of the culture there in Athens. And again, no doubt we can identify with such a sentiment. Bacchus represented the god of beer and wine. Aphrodite was their goddess of sensuality. Plutus was the god of riches and wealth. Apollo, the god of knowledge. We look around our culture. Power, pleasure, the pursuit of success has only evolved in slicker forms of worship today. Greek idols then are now American ideals. But it really hasn't changed, has it? It's the same culture. And it tells us in verse 18... Paul then preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. You guys know that's a strong word. He proclaimed. He didn't suggest. He didn't dull anything down. No, he he proclaimed. He was a herald. He he sees this opportunity. That meant he included the life of Christ, contrary to the pagan obsession to ascend into divinity think about how countercultural when it talks about god would descend into humanity something they'd never heard before certainly the message that paul was preaching included the death of christ and contrary to a god of absolute power such as zeus paul preaches about a god of atoning payment of christ on a cross it included the resurrection of christ You understand what they're saying. What is this babbler saying? It's foreign. We've never heard anything like this. More than just a hope in some kind of afterlife, which even the Greeks and the Athenians and the pagans had, Paul preaches to them the promise of new life found in Christ. Not just then, but now. Paul writes in his epistle to the Romans, the same type of culture. Paul says these things are made known even to the inner man. In Romans chapter eight, the law of the spirit of life in Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. That the same spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies if the spirit lives in you. So this gospel is foreign to these people of Athens. It is contrary to anything they'd ever heard, but it also seemed to ring true. Most of you have heard C.S. Lewis's quote, the ring of truth. There's something in us made in the image of God. When God took the dust of the earth, breathed the spirit of life into Adam. That likewise, you and I being the offspring, that we are made in the image. And C.S. Lewis makes a big deal about there is, because of that, there is this recognition capability of just understanding spiritual truths. This was true because it says in verse 18, they say, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, writes the New King James Version. Anyone here who has the King James Version, verse 18 says, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods. 
that gives us a little bit more insight that they're bearing witness that they understand this man is saying something that is true. A setter forth, in ancient Greek literature, that same word is connected with that of a hunting dog. We think of an Irish setter. Their job is to flush up the bird, right? Paul is saying something and it's, it's flushing up. There's, there's a reaction. They realize, we've never heard this before. We like it. Why don't you come on in and share in a bigger audience, which is the invitation that is soon going to follow. And again, Paul writing to the culture in his epistle to the Romans, he makes known that all of us understand spiritual things. For since the creation of the world, Paul writes in Romans 1, the invisible attributes there are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power in his Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him, they were not thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise. They became fools. They changed the glory of an incorruptible God into the image made like corruptible man. Paul says, all of us know. It's within us. We can't deny it. Today, we think about those who make the claim of atheism, as if they've traveled the entire galaxy and beyond, and they've come to the conclusion there cannot be a God. How foolish, right? At least say you're an agnostic. But of course, agnostic, that just means without knowledge, so that's hard to boast on. But the, the truth is, Paul is saying something, and the people are saying something's being set forth. He's proclaiming something foreign, but true. Paul says the gospel of Christ is the very power of God, leading unto salvation for everyone who believes. Now, continue following me as we go through this, because as we look at this template Paul is giving you an eye, it allows you not to be reminded of the simple power of the gospel, living according to it, that we don't have to be super hip and relevant, but we can actually just be holy and repentant, and God will do the rest. That's, that's where I'm going with this message. Paul comes into the city. People who are boastful of their knowledge, boastful of their philosophy, boastful of their arts, and boastful of the sporting world, and the art world, and the music world, and the pleasure world. And Paul comes in with a message that you and I in 2023 still bear. The gospel. And we're, we're preaching, and we're living, and we find ourselves living in a culture that this is completely countercultural. It's no longer widely accepted in this great land, is it? And certainly there's a reminder as we look at what Paul is doing. And allow us to consider uh, three different things I'll point out here as we go through. As Paul goes through this message, just consider some of the things in our own life. Look at verse 19. And they, that was the two groups of philosophers, the Stoics and the Epicureans. They, in verse 19, took him and brought Paul to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there, they spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Guys, that's before Facebook that was said. I mean, think about it. all their time. I mean, this is the New Testament news feed. Before Instagram, it was Insta Greece. They were coming together, sharing, yum, 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 new knowledge, new plans, new ideas. 
you know, pictures if they could of what someone had for dinner the night before so that you could get a comment and a like and they just wanted new stuff, new stuff, new stuff. You guys get it? That's the Areopagus. It's translated uh, Mars Hill or the Hill of Ares, the Greek god. This is a giant, it would seem like an amphitheater. Paul gets this incredible, we would say in the Christian lingo, an open door just suddenly put before all the think tank of Athens. Can you picture it? Can you see the excitement Paul must have as he sees this? All right. I mean, this guy's been beat several times up until this point. Remember? I mean, this guy, as he writes to us in the epistle to 2 Corinthians, this guy has been through so much. But yet, he definitely can recognize through all of this. Remember, he was just chased out of Thessalonica in the earlier verses of this chapter. Chased out. And then those from Thessalonica then chased him out of Berea. He's now by himself. His ministry team, they haven't even caught up yet. And we can't blame Paul. He's in Athens. He wants to do a little sightseeing. So he's looking around. He finds a shrine and a pillar here and a shrine and a pillar there. It seems as though historians say that there was at least 30,000, 30,000 idols, gods and goddesses and figurines that would have been worshipped. 30,000. And then he comes to this one catch-all, Paul does. You know, they had that one, eh, to the unknown God, in case they missed one. Paul has this conversation with a couple philosophers. Next thing he knows, he gets invited to the big stage. And what does he do? He began to preach to them. He began to proclaim. G. Campbell Morgan, some of you are aware of this man, Scottish theologian, he's gone home to his reward. It was G. Campbell Morgan who said, the church has never done more for the world than when she has become more separate from the world. Think about that in in light of the culture we live in today. The seeker-friendly, emergent church. The church has never done more for the world than when she has become more separate from the world. And I think what Paul does is a wonderful example. He doesn't do what would be tempting in front of a large audience in front of people who have all the PhDs and the, the MDivs and the letters you know, after their names. I mean, these are smart people. These are philosophical people. Not to mention, he's still got scar tissue from his first and second journey. He doesn't have his right-hand man. He doesn't have Barnabas with him. He doesn't have others. I mean, uh, certainly it would be tempting to just kind of water down, tone it down. That's not what he does. He proclaims to them. The Bible tells us that you and I are written epistles, read by all men. How many of us in this room may never get behind an official or a formal pulpit? How many in this room may never have a large audience to preach to? I I, I suspect there are certainly many in this room who will. Some will not. The Bible says that we are written epistles, that we would live in such a way, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, that we would pursue peace and holiness without such who will see God. The same way Paul doesn't water down the message, we can't water down our lifestyle. Has not the world been seeing too much of that? And he comes into this arena and Paul does what we love about Paul. He is bold. And he begins to preach to these people. A constant and always changing stream of news that these people are addicted to. And Paul takes the moment to give them not opinion, not philosophy, but in verse 22, truth. It tells us, then Paul, in verse 22, 
stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Let's stop there for a minute and just chuckle at what he didn't say. That was kind. You're all hell-bound heathens. <laughs> right? that, that could, I mean, true, but maybe not effective at that time. He just says, man, you guys are very religious. Compound word in the Greek. You know what it means? God-sensitive. Isn't that cool? You guys are, I mean, 30,000 gods, I'd say so. He goes, I see you guys are God-sensitive. Very religious, he says. Men of Athens, verse 22, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one, singular, whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. Let's stop there. How interesting, right? I believe this brief sermon that Paul is going to preach here on Mars Hill, it presents to us at least three beautiful truths about Christ and about our ministry as we consider. Three things. Number one, he's going to make known how Christ reaches us right where we are. Anyone grateful for that? Man, I, this, uh, I, I started coming up just saying, man, Southern Florida, the brothers and sisters, the church family that is represented. I know Pastor Zach said over 40 churches represented from Maine to Puerto Rico and everywhere in between in this conference. But the fellowship, I got in Wednesday, got to do the midweek, and then Wednesday night, Pastor Zach and a group of rowdy men from this church, they took me to the ranch. And uh, I, I had no contacts. I, I thought, I, I don't know why I pictured a game of cards all day, drinking coffee. And those who have been, you're laughing because that's not the ranch, is it? It was wild boar hunting and deer hunting and mosquitoes the size of my four-year-old son. Uh, I mean, it was intense, but the fellowship was awesome. And one of the best things about anyone who gets to travel and whoever gets to hear testimony is when you just get to sit down with someone and say, man, tell me your story. You know, tell me, how did God save you? And uh, I had that with several of the brothers, but one brother, Chris, was just sharing about... Uh, several different men, but chiefly Pastor Greg Laurie on the radio. And it was through Godway's radio. And he was driving the car. He was, you know, successful in the business world. And he was living the American ideal, right? Greek idols are now the American ideal. Pursuit, pleasure, power. The word of God, word of God, word of God. And finally, he heard Greg Laurie's message. He was convicted and he, he testifies. He had to pull over and just, you know, on the steering wheel, did business with God. Crying, emotional. It was cool. He tells me, you know, he goes by that same mile marker on the highway every once in a while. He sees that as a sea of Galilee. God reaches us right where we are. And he's going to say that to these very sophisticated people. That's the first part of the message. The second thing, God reveals himself. He's saying, hey, I saw the inscription of the unknown God. He doesn't want to remain unknown. He reveals himself. This is who he is. A relationship. The one who knows everything about us is in this sermon. He's going to say, in him we live, we move, we have our very being. Think about the depth of your being here tonight. God says, I know all that. He doesn't just reach us. He doesn't just reveal to us. But here's the third point. God requires a response. And that's what he's going to do here for us. He reaches us where we are. For the people in the city of Athens... God's glorious gospel has found them enshrined in pagan philosophy, vain idolatry. 
whether it's existentialism or transcendentalism or epicureanism or stoicism or materialism or liberalism or socialism or you just don't care-ism or whatever the ism is that you have found yourself in, like these people, God's going to reach them. That gives us great hope for our culture, doesn't it? As we look around. Again, over 30,000 gods, and yet through all of that, they were so superstitious, it almost seems like they were bearing witness that there might be one out there who's upset that we didn't include him. And so they do this shrine to the unknown God. And so in the midst of such confusion and contradiction, which this certainly would have had in its culture, as our culture does, there's so much confusion and contradictions and it's, it's, it's incessant, isn't it? And so was it with Athens, but through all of that, Paul now delivers to them a very clear and a very concise truth. He's going to say, God reveals himself to you. Verse 24, God, notice how he says this, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands, as though he needed anything. Since he gives to all life, breath, all things, he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, has determined their pre-appointed times, the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him. Though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live, we move, we have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Interesting, he says something that apparently was said once by one of the, the pagans. You know, the saying, even a broken clock is right twice a day. And he says, hey, you guys even came close. Remember that one guy who said this? Paul tells them that God is the maker. He's not the one who is made. Now again, you, you picture all the figurines and the idols and the shrines. You go all the way back, remember, to the days of, of uh, Jacob and Laban and Rachel and Leah. You remember that Laban was an you know, idolater and he had those little figurines and Rachel stole one and she sat on it to hide it. And if you can sit on your God, you have the wrong God, right? <laughs> but, but these are people they are bowing down and they're making and they're forming. And he goes, God's not made, he's the maker. And I'm like, whoa, that's a foreign concept. That's where he begins. He's the creator and the originator of all things. And rather than the innumerable false gods, which only incessantly make demands upon us, notice how he says this true and living God is the one who gives. Guys, remember the burning bush? Moses? And he sees a bush and he tells us by the Holy Spirit, it was on fire, but it wasn't consumed. Anyone here ever been on fire for lust, on fire for addiction, on fire for pornography, on fire for heroin or alcohol or pride or arrogance, and it consumes you and it destroys you? Only God can we be utterly consumed by and we're not destroyed. On fire. He goes, God doesn't demand and take all these false gods did. You know, human sacrifice, blood sacrifice, money, all the workspace religion, if you do this and you do this and you do this, maybe God will be happy and maybe you'll have an afterlife. And, may and he says, no, God doesn't take, he gives. They never heard that before. 
He says in verse 25, he's not worshiped with men's hands as though he needs anything. He gives to all life, breath, and all things. All, right? He gives it to everyone. Even the heathen know John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. He did what? He gave his only son. That whoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. And by revealing himself, God also reveals the identity of you and I made in the very image and likeness of himself. You understand, Paul, in a very limited and short amount of time, he's blowing their mind. He says in verse 26, he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. He has determined their pre-appointed times, the boundaries of their dwellings. He says there's not a white race, there's not a black race, there's not an Asian race. There's one human race formed out of the dust of the earth, breathed the breath of life. We're all made in his image. And for what purpose? The son of God tells us that this is eternal life. In John 17, verse 3, that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's what he says here in the sermon in verse 27. The same thing, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Almost sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? It's not like God is lost and we have to go find him. He's the maker, he just said. He's the one that understands the very boundaries of our dwelling. In him we live, we move, we consist, the writer of Hebrews tells us. He's the image of the invisible God, Paul writes to the Philippians, to the, excuse me, the Colossians. I mean, he, it's not like he's lost. He's saying he's everywhere, he's omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, and yet he still desires that we would grope for him, that we'd seek out, that we'd touch him. I so wish... I could see what that audience there on the Areopagus that day, what they were like. I, I, I assume a pin could drop and they could hear it. Paul is preaching to a, a culture that is so similar to the culture you and I live in. It's extremely countercultural, but the gospel of Christ is the very power of God, transforms, renews, saves. And Paul doesn't hold anything back in this. The scripture is emphatically clear on this one point. God created you and I for the very purpose that we would have fellowship with him, that we would seek him. And he says, guys, he made all of us on the face of the earth that we would grope after him. Billy Graham once said, while an atheist only sees a hopeless end, the Christian sees only an endless hope. And Christ reaches us where we are he reveals himself, who he is, who we are, what that means, what is our purpose, what is God's plan, how do we pursue because of it, but also he requires a response. He doesn't just stop there and say, hey, how about that head knowledge? Post that on your newsfeed. He doesn't just stop there, does he? As it always is, the masses always end up still with the individual. There's a response. He requires a response. You look at verse 29. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art or man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Repent. 
Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. He talks about the uh, times of ignorance. Think about that. I mean, he's not like in some backwoods little crazy hick town of, you know, Turkey or Asia Minor. He's in Athens. I mean, on one hand, it may have been offensive. Times of ignorance. He's like, you know, they're thinking, we're the leaders of the free world. We're, we've birthed all the philosophers. Science, art, medical, uh, astronomy. And he says, God says that even all this ignorance, he'll be overlooked. There's a response. What must have meant to these Athenians that day on Mars Hill? Talking about this resurrection message that Christ has come back from the dead and therefore he will judge the world one day soon by the only one who has already conquered the grave, who defeated sin, who defeated death. He says in verse 31, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. The message of Paul always comes back to the resurrection. It has to. He doesn't just talk about the perfect son of God who came down, condescended, right? He didn't just descend. That's just changing locations. He condescended. God, who was equal with God, the Son of God, didn't consider it robbery to be in the same category as God, made himself of no reputation, took on the form of a man, not just any man, but the form of a slave, was obedient to the point of death, not just any death, death of a cross. I mean, that's condescension. He goes, but he also rose from the dead, conquered sin and death. He goes, and because he's the witness and he's the only one that's ever done that, he's coming back again, Athenians. He said 2,000 years ago, Paul says this, He's coming back again. These times of ignorance, God has overlooked. I mean, Paul preached to these people that day about a God who created all before time began, gave it all on a hill called Calvary, conquered all when he rose from the dead, and on the third day he became the one who demands it all from those he came to save. Can I say that again? This message, he says, God's the creator. He made everything. He created all. He doesn't take like the false gods. He gave it all. He then conquered all when he rose again on the third day. And because of that, he demands not 90%, not 50%. He goes, he demands it all from those he came to save. Fellow brothers and sisters in 2023, can we agree this message of Jesus Christ in his resurrection, it's not just revolutionary, it's radical. This is a radical message God has given you and I, isn't it? You and I, we do absolutely a dangerous disservice when and if we try and tone down or water down just how radical of a response God demands from us. The Son of God said in Matthew 16, you guys know the verse, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Guys, that was radical then, that's radical today. That's a radical message. And this is happening to people, they've never heard anything like this. You know, in the ministry with my wife and I, our team, just over three years in Portland, Maine, we've seen a, a tremendous response to God's word, the power of just teaching God's word. I am so thankful in the sovereignty of God. He saw fit to save this heroin addict to get discipled in a Calvary Chapel movement where the word of God is taught and believed and the power of the spirit equips it. 
planning a church three years ago in a very dark city. Portland, Maine was the number two in 2019, the number two most unchurched city in America, according to Barner Research. San Jose, California, Portland, Maine, Springfield, Massachusetts. Number two most unchurched city in America. Portland, Maine culturally wants to be Portland, Oregon, if that tells you something. That's, what, that, that's the, the aspiration. And we came down in the middle of a lockdown. We don't have a governor like you guys have. We have a little bit of a tyrant up in Maine. She's a queen, or so she thinks. So we had some serious lockdowns, some draconian measures. So you can imagine when the Spirit of God began to call me and my wife and our team to go to our cell to the biggest city in Maine, the liberal city in Maine, and to open the doors when it was not legal to open the doors. They had a 10 person at that time in 2020. Our governor was the number one most restrictive state in the nation. Governor Gavin Newsom had just been reprimanded by the Supreme Court. Maine became the number one most restrictive state in the nation on churches. Pot houses could be open, pot shops. Uh, big box stores could be open. Strip clubs were allowed to be open. Churches could only have 10 people or more. So we came down in 2000, the summer of 2020, following the example of our pastor, Ken. We rented a little space, put a bunch of chairs in, told a couple of people on social media, open the doors. And all the sheep that were scattered began to show up. And then they said, wait, you guys like believe the Bible? You guys teach the Bible? We just see this incredible response in three years of people coming, of you know, sins being forsaken, repentance, of reconciliation, marriages, of drug addicts being set free. I mean, it's been incredible to watch. And what a disservice we would have done to those people showing up if we had done what so many others had been doing, just kind of water it down, make it trendy. Now, God doesn't mean sexual sin is a sin. That was 2,000 years ago. Things have changed. No, they haven't. This is a radical message Paul is giving to these people, to a very intimidating crowd. And God, I'll be the first to admit, I know what intimidation is. Truly. Ask my wife. She'll tell you. I, I, you know, leaving Calvary Chapel Bangor, that's my dream job. Ken was my, is a, my spiritual father in the faith, of my pastor, my life, my wife's life. We were changed on that campus. My dad gave us one acre of land a mile down the road, 2019. I'm like, this is it. Living on staff, living on campus. Our parsons, our twins, our four and a half year old twins at the time were born right there in the church. I'm like, this is, Lord, thank you. You've been so good to us. Then COVID happened. And all I can tell you is a sense to go and to launch out and to plant a church. I'm thinking, this is terrifying. That's a bad idea. It's, the churches are closed everywhere. But I've seen the spirit of God and the word of God just absolutely transform people's lives, as it has mine, as it has many, if not all of yours. How can we not take this same message out to the world? And again, the Bible says that we are written epistles. We have to live in such a way. There is a response that's going to happen here. As we look at this, we'll see it. In ministry, just recently, I remember my wife got a, a phone call from a desperate mother. She reached out to my wife. She was an out-of-state woman, and she connected with Calvary Chapel, knowing Bangor, Maine, and, and uh, some of the churches there are very much involved in addiction ministry. She uh, just shared about these areas of uh, addiction that were gripping her life and her children's life. And uh, I, I remember as Maddie began to share counsel to this person who clearly was in compromise, knew enough to reach out to the church house, but her life was so plagued with sin. I remember my wife just made it so simple. She, says, she said, miss, you cannot live in disobedience to God 
while simultaneously expecting the blessing of God. You can't live in disobedience to God and want the peace of God. You can't live in disobedience and want the satisfaction of God, the hope of God, the promises of God. It's repentance. There's sin in your life. You have to forsake. God will forgive you, but you cannot do one or the other. Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. And so what happens here is a message of repentance is given to this audience. No doubt there may be some here who in some degree or another, there's rebellion in your heart. There's rebellion in your life. There's, there's areas of your life that God is saying, listen, I, I, I need you to surrender that. Remember, I'm the one who made all. I, I know the very boundaries of your dwellings. I, I've pre-appointed your times. The son of God told us that he knows every hair on our head. But he says, I, I need something. I need you to let go of this thing that is killing you. Verse 30 says, truly these times of ignorance God has overlooked. But now, just as it was for those who heard Paul that day, likewise the terms being laid out for you and I, he would command that all men everywhere would repent. Notice in verse 32, and when they heard of this resurrection of the dead, they heard this message, some mocked. Others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from amongst them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, there was Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with him. Three categories of, of, of response there. One, those who rejected, they mocked. They're like, this is foolish. Outwardly demonstrating thanks, but no thanks. I, I would imagine that's no one in the building tonight. You guys are here. You, you've made a, a commitment. You've traveled. You've invested. You registered. You've come with other brothers and sisters. There are those who reject this message. The second category, there are those who... They relate to it. Yeah, we'll hear you again. Not today. I don't, want to, I don't want to do anything today, but that bears witness to my soul. I like what you're saying. I like what you're putting down. I always know where someone's at, and I, I appreciate the transparency and the honesty, um, but I always know, Pastor Zach, I'm sure, uh, Pastor David, I'm, you, you have sometimes people come after you give a message, and they'll say, whoa, the energy was like right on. Like in the energy. <laughs> They're usually in the relate category. You know what I'm saying? They're like, that, yeah, that's good. That's good. I mean, I'm not going to do anything right now about it. Well, I'll hear you again. We'll bite you back a year or two from now. There's some in that category that you know that you have not done business with God. You, you haven't laid down your life, at least not all of it. And then there are those who repent. It says some. He mentions them by name. I mean, that's how small the category was. Some. Some repented. We'll find out about these men. These will be men who are going to serve. But, you know, you, you consider that. This giant, no doubt, auditorium filled with people and just the some. And that, you know, that is true for you and I. Do I believe God can do a massive revival in our land again? Are we encouraged by the birth of, of Calvary Chapel in the 1960s? We consider how God has done. He has swept across from sea to sea in this land before, a massive revival. Absolutely. Should we be praying for that? Absolutely. But maybe he won't. Maybe it will be the sum. It still doesn't change our responsibility, does it? That we still have to live in holiness. We have to live in surrender. We have to live a life that is a written epistle read by all men 
That if people never even stepped inside of a church house, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, that by pursuing peace and holiness, those would see God who otherwise wouldn't. It doesn't change our responsibility. I remember on the way to the airport, Portland, Maine, we were driving down to Boston to take a one-way on Wednesday morning. And uh, I kid you not, it was the funniest thing. A, a Jeep pulled in front of my wife and I on the way down, and on the back of the uh, wheel hub, the spare wheel on the back of a Jeep, there was that statement, a stupid statement, not all who wander are lost. You guys know that statement? Can we agree that's a stupid statement? I mean, spiritually speaking, the Son of God says, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many who go in by it. Guys, that's the Son of God saying most people are going to hell. That's what he's saying. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way. Jesus Christ says, I'm the way in John 14, 6. There's no other way. Difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. That's the message. The son of God said that. He didn't say, I'm a way. I'm the way. I'm not a truth. I'm the truth. I'm not just one pathway to eternal and a fruitful life. I'm the only one. But pick up your cross and follow me. We must be people. We must be young adults. We must be men and women in our communities and in our churches and in our families. We must be people of holiness and repentance, not people who are too concerned with being hip and relevant. Can we, can we hear that from the Spirit of God tonight? That, that's what God has called us to be. I'll end with just a brief quote. Philip Yancey, contemporary author, he wrote many books. One I just completed not long ago, The Jesus I never knew. Philip Yancey, he makes some very unique observations. One of them, he has an interview with a college professor, Virginia Tech University. And uh, Virginia Owens, she was a Christian lady, forgive me, it was Texas A&M. It was Texas A&M. Virginia Owens, a Christian, but yet a professor in this college. And uh, this was just a few years ago. And this is what this lady says. She says, I find it strangely comforting that the Bible remains offensive to my students' honest and ignorant ears. Just as it was in the first century, for me, that somehow validates its significance. Whereas the scripture almost lost their characteristically harsh flavor during the past century here in America, however, this newly current and widespread biblical illiteracy should catapult us into a situation more nearly approximating that of their original first century audience. The response of the gospel has always been widely antagonistic. It's countercultural, isn't it? I think that gives you and I a wonderful advantage. The church has never done more for the world when the church has become more separate from the world. That is saying to you and I, Christian, you've never done more for the world than when you have become more separate from the world. When we live in holiness, when we live in purity, when we live for conviction, biblical conviction, when we live in fellowship, when we live with spiritual authority in our life, pastors and elders, for some maybe even still moms and dads if you're in their house, those of us who live with a hunger for God's word, a hunger for God's will, a prayer life, Live like that and watch how separate from the world you'll be, but watch how effective for Christ you'll be. Amen? Will you guys pray with me tonight as the band comes back up? 
Lord, I'm grateful for every man and woman here tonight. I'm certainly grateful for an opportunity to preach behind this pulpit, Lord, humbled by it. Lord, I, I know the man I am apart from you. Yet, Lord, I can also testify with gratitude and with boldness that you are a God who truly brings life and gives to the dead. Lord, you are a God who redeems and you restore. Lord, you are a God of forgiveness and grace. But Lord, you are also a God of truth and justice. And Lord, you demand from us a response. Thank you that we were reminded tonight, Lord, you reached down to where we were, where we are, even here tonight. Lord, nothing is a surprise to you. And you reach down, Lord, but you also reveal to us the text message from heaven in which we looked at here tonight, the scripture. Lord, that you would make known to us the Son of God. But Lord, with all of that, with, with reaching down and revealing yourself, you require a response. Lord, I wonder with the several hundred who are here tonight, I wonder if there's a man or woman who knows that they need to get right. There, there is repentance that needs to take place. Or my, my desire, Lord, would be that they would respond to the Spirit of God. I pray, Lord, as we finish in song, Lord, I know as Pastor Zach will come up, as we even have a time to pray and to continue worship, Lord, I pray tonight would be the night that a line is drawn in the sand for some of these young people, where they make a commitment to serve you all the days of their life, where they make a commitment, Lord, to no longer care what the world thinks, but they would only be concerned about what you think, their maker. Lord, I pray you would overflow this individual and all of us tonight with your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that there would be a spirit of holiness that would come upon each and every one of us. Lord, that we would not leave Calvary Chapel, Miami, South Florida Young Adults Conference without being changed because of our encounter with you. So, Lord, lead us and guide us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.